Well, before we get into the message this morning, I just want to talk to you uh, really briefly about um, our family meeting uh, last Sunday. Um, I, was, uh, I was really uh, uh, impressed at the fact of how many of you came to that. And uh, so after the second gathering last week, we uh, shared some, some food together, and uh, the, the leaders of, of our church, the, the, the staff and the elders, had a chance to talk to you, and you had a chance to ask questions. And, uh, but there was something that I said during that meeting that I, I, I need to clarify, and, and that is when I, we talked about Clem Boyd, I referred to him as an, a voluntary elder, a voluntary elder, and, and the reality is, is that actually all elders are voluntary, like uh, even staff elders are not paid to be elders, right, so we're all voluntary, um, and, uh, and so the, the, the clarification here is I, I want to, to, to say we do need non-staff elders, we are in need of non-staff elders, um, and so um, we're, we're asking um, for for, for you to, to pray and consider, is God calling you into that? The thing about um, church leadership is that it affects um, not just the, the staff and not just the, the, the elders when, when, when there's not enough help there. It actually affects the whole body. And so this is a, a time when we're asking the whole body to sort of move forward into leadership a little bit. And this is what I, what I mean by that. Say you're on a, a servant team. Right? You're on a servant team, and you recognize that maybe your servant team lead, uh, maybe he should be stepping up into an elder role, but because his hands are full of doing other leadership, he can't. So is God calling you to step over into his role so he can become an elder? Or maybe that's a house church situation. You're not a house church leader uh, directly or the sole one responsible, um, but maybe you have a house church leader that you would say, he should be stepping into that role, and in order to free his hands to do that, I will step in and take some responsibility for leading our house church, okay? Um, The last thing I wanna say about this is that um, we want elders, we want good leaders for this church for the long term. And so if you're not an elder now, Right? If you're not uh, ready now, that's okay. Maybe God will call you into that someday. Why not begin preparing for that now? Right? And so if, if you, you, you think that, that maybe God will call you into that someday, no matter if it's 10 years down the road, why not begin to prepare for that now? So come and talk to one of us, and, uh, and, and we'd love to spend time with you and disciple you toward that end. Okay? Um, with that, I'm gonna pray, and we're gonna dive into today's message. Okay? Heavenly Father, um, we need you to lead us. We need you to, um, to be the one who guides uh, this church. It's your uh, power that has to lead it and your wisdom and not ours. Um, you uh, point the finger at us and you call us uh, and give us responsibility, um, but we must be completely and, and utterly dependent upon you. And so I pray for leaders uh, for our church in, in every aspect. I pray that, that you would call us um, not, to, uh, not to pride and arrogance and dominance and control, but you would call us to responsibility and, and serving and, uh, and, and, and being Jesus in, in every way. Uh, Father, I pray for uh, this morning's message. I pray for um, this role that you've given us as missionaries. Help us to embrace that identity. Um, and I also pray that you would help us to identify the lies that that prevent us from embracing that identity. Um, be at the center of all of this. Be glorified in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So uh, if you would uh, turn with me to John chapter 20. And while you're turning to a New Testament passage, uh, I want to, uh, to talk to you about an Old Testament passage. Um, some of you uh, 
I've heard the story maybe from 2 Kings about a a prophet named Elisha, and he encounters um, a widow woman who who the creditors are are knocking on her door. Um, Her husband has apparently racked up uh, some uh, some debt. He's passed away, and now creditors are, are coming after her to take her kids and sell them into slavery. And so she comes to Elisha, and she asks for help. And Elisha says to her, well, what do you have that's of value? And she says, well, I have this jar of oil. And it's not enough to, to sell and pay off these debts. So, so what Elisha says, is he says, go to all your neighbors and collect as many empty jars as you possibly can and take them into your house and begin to fill those empty jars from your jar of oil. And there's this miraculous thing that happens is she fills jar after jar after jar until she runs out of empty jars. And then she's able to take that oil and she sells it. She pays off her debts and her sons and her are able to live off of the rest. Now this is a picture of, of miraculous abundance, Right? Miraculous, beautiful, multiplication, abundance. Now, I, I want to begin with a, maybe a similar illustration this morning. I don't have a jar of oil, but I have a ball of string. And I have your imaginations, hopefully. All right? So track with me on this. Let's say that, um, that I hand uh, the, the loose end of this ball of string to, to my friend Matt, who's sitting in the front row. And uh, he holds on to this, and then I take the rest of the ball, and I go out that door, and I begin to walk around the building. Round and around and around I go with this ball of string. So many times that the string itself prevents light from coming in all the windows. So many times wrapped around the building that that it blocks out the light coming in through these windows. And say we we get done with doing that, we look at the ball of string, and it's still the same size. That'd be pretty cool, right? So we, we get in a car, and we drive 980 miles to Cape Canaveral. And we get to Cape Canaveral, and the ball of string, still the same size. So we hop on a, uh, on a rocket, and uh, one of us is holding the ball of string out the window. Again, imagination, all right? Not grounded in physics. And we, we fly to the moon, all right? Uh, 220,000 miles away, I think. We fly to the moon, we get to the moon, the ball of string, still the same size. And we begin to wrap the moon in string. Your imagination. We're wrapping the moon in string, and we go around and around and around the moon until the whole moon is covered in string. And we look down at our ball of string, and it's still the same size. So we'll head out to Pluto, right? Three and a quarter billion miles away. And we get to Pluto, and the string is still the same size. And so we wrap up Pluto in string, right? So then... Let's, let's, where do we go next, right? Alpha Centauri, Proxima B is a planet around that. That's like five uh, light years away. So uh, the Millennium Falcon is there available for us apparently or, or the Enterprise, whatever geek you are. And, and we go to, to Proxima B and we get to Proxima B and the string is still the same size. And we wrap up Proxima B in string. And so it's, you see where I'm getting at? A never-ending ball of string. Now, what if the string represents time? It's time. Every, every millimeter of the string a year. Time. Just going on and on and on without end. You know, we serve an eternal God. And uh, an eternal God who has no beginning. He, he doesn't have a beginning, all right? And he has no end. But he's made us, he's given us a beginning, but he's placed eternity on our hearts. He's made us for eternity. And for the Christian, this is really good news. You know, we don't know a ton about heaven. We know that there's not going to be pain, sorrow, or death, tears, or mourning. That's really good news, right? 
But I think there's, there's other things that we were created for that we get to experience in, in fuller ways in the kingdom of God. Like the fact that God has made us for work. Not toilsome, laborious, like work that, that sucks the life out of you, but like creative work that, that gives you life. He's, he's made us with hands and, and, and he's made us to be able to, to engage and create and, and whether that's gardening or whether that's you know, uh, carpentry or maybe it's welding, what, painting, whatever it is. Imagine having all the time in the world to be able to engage and create in these ways and never having to go look at your watch and say, ah, I gotta go to work tomorrow. I gotta, I gotta stop what I'm doing and clean up because tomorrow I have to go and do the job that I'm paid to do, right? Imagine the relational time that we get to have in eternity, right? To sit down and have coffee with that friend, to hang out with that group of guys, to maybe go on that bike ride or to, to, to experience those, all of those relationships and never have to say, ah, I gotta go pick up the kids from work or kids from school. I gotta, I gotta get moving, Right? For, for those of you who are extroverts, man, this is really great news. You're gonna encounter a whole bunch of people you've never met before. All of that relationships that you get to experience, right? All those, those conversations that you get to have. Relational time without a, how, how about like your, your, your hobbies or your, your interests or, or, or the, the things that you like to do to recreate. Imagine being able to go, to, go camping and not saying, oh, I gotta hurry up and get back because I gotta begin life again tomorrow to take a hike, and, and, and when, the, when the trail comes to a fork, you can say, you know what, I don't have to choose both right or left. I, I can go down both. I have enough time. I have enough time to summit that peak or see what's around that next bend to, to explore and go deeper into to, to what, what has been made and, and to be able to have that, that kind of recreation, you know, or rest, to be able to sit beneath a tree and not have to do anything not have to stare at your watch, not have to keep track of what's, like to just deeply rest. And that's what we get to enjoy because of eternity. On the other side of that, though, there will be people who, unlike us, are still enemies of God. People who are still walking in darkness, unlike us. People who, who are still at enmity who are still children of wrath. And they too have an eternity set before them. An eternity. An eternity of, of, of living death. An eternity of, of wrath. An eternity of darkness. And does the Christian care? See, the reality is I think that if you are a Christian, you care. The... the People say that the opposite of love is hate. It's not the truth. The opposite of, of love is indifference. To hate somebody is to look at them and want, and, and want the worst for that person, but at least you look at that person. Indifference is to not regard that person as a person at all. To, for, for a person to, to, to say, I have experienced the grace of God, I have experienced the mercy of God. I have experienced the love of God. I have experienced all that he has done for me. And for that person to be indifferent toward the plight of others who are on a trajectory of hell, I don't think that that's possible. 
If you are in Christ and he is in you, you are changed and you recognize that he who first loved you is now enabling you to love others and you care about the lost. I really believe that the church cares about the lost. I believe that I'm talking to a bunch of people this morning that you genuinely care that people are living and dying and going to hell and you don't like it. You care. I believe that. I don't think the problem is, is that we as Christians don't care. I think the problem is that we don't know what to do about it. We don't know what to do about it. So if you would, look with me, John, uh, verse 20, chapter 20, beginning of verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So here's what's happening here. This is uh, after the resurrection of Jesus. He's lived, he's died, the power of the Spirit has raised him from the dead, and now he is going around revealing himself to those who have followed him. And he, he shows up in this room, and he says, peace to you. Peace to you. And he, and he shows them his hands that, that have holes in them from the nails he shows them his side, which was pierced by a spear, and he's showing them the proof that, that he was, in fact, dead, but now he is alive. He's showing him, them the, the wounds that he suffered. Isaiah said it's by those wounds that we are healed. It's by those wounds that we're saved. It's by those wounds that we are redeemed. Those wounds paid for us paid for our sin and covered it over so that we could have a relationship with God. By his wounds, we are saved, but by those wounds, we are sent. He says the very next thing, as I have been sent, so I send you. You've been sent. And I have been sent. He then says peace to you again, and then he, he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not the day of Pentecost. This happens before the day of Pentecost that being that time when the Spirit falls on the whole church. But you could look at this sort of like a down payment on the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what is he doing in that moment? Peace to you. He's calming them. These are people who've, who've seen him die, and now they're seeing him alive, and this has got to be freaking them out to some degree. My peace to you. And he's giving his peace, but he's also giving them boldness for what he's sending them to do. See, the reality is that I think for, for Christians, it's not that we don't care that people are on this trajectory of hell. It's not that we don't care. It's just that we, we don't quite know what to do about it. And I think there's two problems that we need to address here. And the first one is this. We don't realize that we are God's sent ones. We don't fully embrace that we are missionaries. We don't fully understand what that means. The second one that we're going to look at this morning is that there is this subtle lie that rules us 
that our, that our flesh enjoys, that uh, the world tells, and it was invented by an enemy. There is this, this lie that controls us, and it takes, it steals our time and ties our hands to being missionaries of God. And so we're going to talk about that this morning, too. But just to, to sort of uh, let you know what we're being, where we've been and, and what the purpose of this whole series is, is this, this series is called Jesus Saturation. And the point of this series is um, mostly for our house church leaders. Mostly it's for our house church leaders. That in addition to this, the, the sermon series, there's stuff that's going on outside of the sermon series. Um, people who are, are house church leaders or, or potentially becoming house church leaders are on, on a daily basis um, studying, praying, um, reading scripture, um, all on their own. And then um, after they hear the sermon, we get together in huddles and they're spending time with other house church leaders with an elder going deeper in all of this. And, and the point of all this is so to prepare, prepare them to lead your house churches through this uh, together. But this is about, it's about um, alignment between our house churches for us to have a common understanding about what a house church is and all of that. It, it's about uh, training leadership, leadership, but it's also about becoming what we say we are on that sign out there. We say that we're a family of house churches. This is, this is movement toward becoming that reality. So we began weeks ago with uh, looking at what the church is. And the church is, if we look at the New Testament, um, a good way of sort of boiling it down is, is by saying this, that the church is the people of God Saved by the work of Jesus for his purposes in the world. For his purposes in the world. And, and what do we see as his purposes in the world? Well, as we just read from, from, from John 20, is, is that as he was sent, he sends us. His purposes in the world. If we want to know what his purposes are, we're supposed to look at him in the example that he set. He, he said this in, in Matthew 28, this, what we call the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples. This is, this is the work that's before us. We're saved by what he's done for us and enabled to go and, and, and do this purpose in the world, to go and make disciples. And what does he say there? Make disciples, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's from this we see that we've been given this, this new identity. To be baptized into the name of the Father is, be, is to be baptized in an, in an identity of being family. Father has adopted us. He has, through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross, he's made us who were enemies and strangers, he's made us family because of Jesus. And so if you are in Christ, then you're an adopted son, you're an adopted daughter. And if I'm an adopted son, that makes us brothers. We are family because we've been baptized into the name of the Father. Secondly, we've been baptized into the name of the Son. The Son is the servant he said, Jesus said, I, I came not to, to be served, but to serve. And he says, you're not greater than I am. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you are a servant. It is an identity that we have. We've, we, we have this identity because we've been baptized into the name of the Son. But lastly, we've been baptized into the name of the Spirit. We've been baptized into the Spirit. We've been given this, this power from God, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead to proclaim the gospel to the world. This makes us missionaries. And this is the identity that we have. Look at uh, Habakkuk 2.14 with me. We have these uh, gospel identities. For, uh, Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is the gospel. It is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is what is, God has accomplished through this. This gospel, this is the glory of the Lord that we are to have knowledge about. And this knowledge is to saturate the entire earth. And how does it saturate the entire earth if we don't proclaim it? If we don't proclaim it. You say that Jesus' saturation, if you wanted a a definition for it or what our hope is for all of this, is to see every man, every woman, and child, and every place having a daily encounter with Jesus in words spoken and deeds done through us. To put it maybe more succinctly, what God has done for us, he wants to do through us. He wants to change the world through what he's done for us. We are missionaries. Charles Spurgeon said this, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. If you would say that I have been changed by the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ for me, that while I was still an enemy of God, he found me and he saved me, that he redeemed me, if you would say all of that and then say I am not a missionary is to to withhold what he's done from you for, for, for somebody else, that is, you're not a Christian, you're an imposter. If you can't see the way that Jesus has saved you, if you don't recognize the love that he's given you first, that's where it has to begin. Every Christian, either a missionary or an imposter. Going back to the the first of the two problems, we don't realize that we're God-sent ones. We don't realize that we're missionaries. I don't know about you, but I, I grew up in church believing that a missionary is somebody who went overseas. Missionary is, is somebody who was trained and they learned languages and they learned cultures and, and then they asked the church to, to fund them to go to another country overseas. And, and, and when, you, when you entertain missionaries, the missionaries were coming back from places overseas from other countries. And, and that's, that's what I believe missions work was. That's what I believed a, a missionary was. And, and, and how is it that we've come to believe that? For so long, we've been laboring under this idea that the United States is a Christian nation. And so I don't need to tell my neighbor about Jesus. He already knows. I don't need to tell my coworker about what the Bible says. They already know. We've, we've been laboring under this idea that people in our culture already know, so we don't need to be missionaries. And that is so completely far from the truth. Um, when... Uh, when God was talking to Jonah, this, that, that prophet missionary in the Old Testament, when God was talking to Jonah, um, he was describing what it means to be lost. And in Jonah 4.11, we read uh, this. He says that these are persons, the people of Nineveh, the people that Jonah was sent to, these are persons who do not know their right hand from their left. This is what it means to be lost. People who do not know their right hand from their left. Meaning that when it comes to the simplest of truth about who God is, they've got it backwards. They got it upside down. They've got it wrong. They don't know their right hand from their left and God cares about that. Doesn't that describe the culture in which we live? Doesn't that describe the people that we work with? The people that are our neighbors and our friends and our family members. They don't know their right hand from their left but they sure are sure that they do, right? Jesus said, as I have been sent, I'm sending you. We have a missionary God, 
And it's been that way from the beginning. You think about creation. And uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And at the center of this universe, here is humanity placed in this, this perfect garden. Adam and Eve, image bearers of God, right? And what we see right off the bat is we see that God is family. We asked this question last week, why did God create? Why did he create humanity? And a lot of people think, oh, God created humanity because God was lonely. No, God is Trinity, God is Father and Son and Spirit. He is an eternal love relationship. He's not lonely. He has all the relational needs fulfilled. But he creates family because he is family. And so he makes husband and wife and to, to multiply and subdue the earth. He creates family because he is family. We, we think that, uh, that God created humanity because maybe he had some sort of materialistic need that human hands needed to create for him. No. Or we think that God, his self-esteem was so low, he needed to create humanity because he needed somebody to worship him. No. All of his needs are fulfilled. He doesn't need anything. God creates because God is love. He's family who makes family. He's a servant who makes, you think about this, that all of creation he's upholding in his hands. He creates this, this whole universe, and at the center of it, there's, there's Adam and Eve, and here's this garden, this perfect place that's move-in ready. They need to do nothing. He's made it all for them, and he's provided for them physically, emotionally, spiritually. Every need is cared for by him. He serves them. He's a servant, and he serves. So let me ask you this. What if he wasn't a missionary? Think about that. What if God was not a missionary? Our Bibles would end in Genesis 3. The story would end when Adam and Eve rebelled against him, disobeyed him, took that fruit, ate it, rejected him as, as, as reign and ruler over them, and, and there they go, leaving the Garden of Eden. And that would be the final closing scene of the Bible. Is there Adam and Eve go? That's the end of the story. But God is a missional God. Because all the rest of this is about him coming after us. The rest of this, he, he calls Abram, go from Ur the Chaldees. I'm sending you to this place called Palestine. And there I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. He sends Abram. And then, and then he, through Abram, raises up this people, this whole people. And he sends them out of Egypt back to this promised land where there will be a kingdom of priests. Why? Because he's a missional God sending them. And the whole world is supposed to look to them and see what God is like. And they fail. And so God sends what? He sends prophet after prophet to call them to repentance because he's a missional God. He even sends Jonah, the guy we just talked about. He sends Jonah to, to Nineveh, which was the enemy of God's people. Why? Because God's a missional God. And at the, 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 the pinnacle of this missional activity is Jesus Christ, the Son of God taking on flesh. God sends himself. And he lives this life, right? God moves into the neighborhood like a good missionary does. And God speaks the language like a good missionary does. And God knows the culture like a good missionary does. The whole time, he's, he's praising God. He's glorifying God. He's not acting like many of us do. He's living this perfect life. But he is a missionary. And he goes so far as to take this missionary life and to lay it down so that we could be saved. And he goes to the cross and he offers himself as a sacrifice. 
but the power of the Holy Spirit raises him from the dead. And so he's going around in this resurrected body, showing his disciples, and he's saying, I have been sent, and so I am sending you. You see, we're missionaries because we come from a missionary God. This is an undeniable reality that we must we must embrace mission work. It's not something that we do. It's something that we are. Put the period on the point, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. You're baptized into the Holy Spirit. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. The, the, the Spirit of God in you, that's where the boldness comes from when you're afraid. The Spirit of God in you, that's where the peace comes from when you're in strange and, and, and weird places. The Spirit comes upon you, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's where it comes from to, to enable you to, to be this missionary that you've been called to be. You will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You will tell the people about my life and my death and my resurrection. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. If we think that missionaries are people we send to other countries, and yet we recognize that our own neighbors and coworkers don't know their right hand from their left when it comes to the truth, are we actually waiting for a missionary to come from overseas in order to proclaim the gospel to our coworkers or our neighbors? No. Conveniently, there's a missionary living right next door to your neighbor. That's what we are. Secondly, to face this problem, we're controlled by a lie which steals our time and prevents us from being the solution. There's something that we tend to believe, many of us, most of us. It's so subtle, and we don't even recognize it for being a lie. Our flesh naturally gravitates towards it. The world preaches it constantly through every venue you could possibly imagine. And it comes straight from the pit of hell. And here's the lie. My identity is found in what I do. My identity is found in what I do. What I do determines what I am. I shape my identity. Just think about that. When you uh, meet somebody new for the first time, what do you ask them? What do you do for a living? Right? Your career is what defines your identity. You married? You got kids? You single? Your family, your nuclear family defines your identity. What do you do on the weekends? What are your hobbies? What are your interests? What are you into? Hobbies, like all of these things. And see, this is why it's such a, a horrible, horrible lie. Because we give all of our time to it. We give all of our time to it. Um, I, I, I'm going to ask you this question. If you would say this morning, I, I care about the lost. I care about the lost. I, I want to see people who don't know Jesus. I want to see them turn to Jesus. I, I believe you when you say that I'm a missionary, but I don't have time for this. Could it be the reason you don't have time for that is because missionary thing is something that you do, and it's at the bottom of your to-do list, and the stuff that's at the top of your to-do list you do because that's where you find your identity. 
You have no more time left because you've spent all your time working so that people will approve of you. You spent all your time climbing the ladder and using your coworkers to be able to, 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 to step off of them and elevate yourself. You use your boss in order to get the, his approval or her approval of you. Like you look at your work as the means by which your identity is found. And you spend all of your time to get your own approval and the world's approval of you, and maybe even God's. Your identity is found in your work. Or, or maybe you would say, um, I'm, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I don't have a career. I have a family. That's awesome. Great. You could still find your identity in that. And you could spend your whole life trying to create the perfect family that, that will enable you to, to prove your worth and validate your existence to the world around you. Look at my spouse and look what I do for them and look how they've, they've become a better person because of their relationship with me and look at my children and look at the sports that they're into and, and look at the fact that they've been able to advance a grade beyond their years. Look at the fact that they can play this instrument or they compete at this level in sports and all of this stuff which gives us glory which validates our identity on the other hand if your spouse leaves you that wrecks your identity too if your if your kids fail you if they don't live up to your standards for them if they they don't learn that musical instrument or or they fail to to to, to beat that other kid in the whatever it is then your identity is attached to, to their failure. Our families is what we spend so much time for, time with and time on in order to, to create this identity for ourselves that we pe think people will value. Or what about our interests? I think that for, for many of us, our hobbies are not chosen based on what we like to do, but based on what we think other people will approve of. What, what other people will think are interesting, right? So, oh, you've been to, to, to this place? That's cool, I've never been there. You've gone camping in that location? Awesome. You've hiked that mountain? Cool, like, like all of these interests that you have and these interests, they make you a really interesting person. We wanna validate ourselves. We want people to see us and, and, and think that we, we're special, that we're something you see, it's all about doing in order to, to create this identity for ourselves. That's the lie. And the result is that we give all of our time to the doing and never recognize the aspect of us being. And our time is gone. And so you would say this morning, yes, I care about the lost. And I get you're telling me that I'm a missionary, but I don't have time. Could it be that you don't have time because you've given all of your time to trying to create an identity for, for yourself? Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. What if you spent all of your time trying to create an identity but there's already been an identity created for you that's better. See, here's the truth. The truth is my identity is found in what has been done for me by Jesus. What has been done for you 
by Jesus. You see, he's already lived the life that's perfect. You can't live a better one. And he gives you that life. He's already uh, perfected you in righteousness because of what he's done for you. Like, Jesus has already lived the life that you, you will ultimately fail to live. The work has been done for you. And God looks at you, and he sees what Jesus has done, and he approves of you, and he loves you, and he accepts you. There is nothing that you could ever do that will make him love or accept you more than he does of you right now. The life is complete. It's done. The work is done for you. And yet, here's what Paul says. He says, make the best use of your time. Do you think that making the best use of your time is trying to create a better identity than the one that has already been given to you by Jesus Christ? Do you think spending all of the minutes and hours of your day putting your identity into your career, your family, or your hobbies, do you think that at the end of it all, you'll look back and you'll say, I'm glad I spent my life doing all of that when here's God saying, but this is the identity I made for you. It's already done. I mean, you ever heard of rework? You ever worked in an environment where like somebody does a job and then somebody comes along and tries to do it better and they're just wasting time? That's what we're essentially doing. Jesus has done it all already. What a waste of time. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. It is wise to, to stop chasing after an identity. It is wise to embrace the identity that's already been given to you. Think about that. If you embrace this new identity, how would work be different for you? It wouldn't be about validating you. You wouldn't use your coworkers. You wouldn't uh, strive for your boss's approval. Instead, you would see your work as a means for the gospel to be communicated in the places that you work. Your work is now a means of mission. Your family becomes a means of mission. Your, your, your own family becomes the people that you've been sent to, not people you're using to validate yourself. Your hobbies become tools by which you include other people to join you in so that you can have opportunity to share the gospel with them. See, all of life changes. I'm not saying that we stop doing life when we become missionaries. We just do life as missionaries. I'm going to close with this thought. You think of the, the endless ball of string. It goes on and on and on. What is your life, comparatively speaking? What is your life, comparatively speaking, with eternity? See, you might be here today and you may be thinking, I don't have enough time for mission. I don't have enough time to be a missionary. And the reality is there's a whole world of people heading on a trajectory of darkness and death. I say you don't have enough time not to be. Make the most use of our time Look, this isn't about guilt. This is not about shame. This is not about obligation. 
This is about simply recognizing that we are called to do what has already been done for us. It's about recognizing how much we have been loved and out of that desire to love one another. Make the most use of your time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for being a missionary God. Thank you that from the very beginning you've been pursuing us. How much love there is in that. There is nothing we could give you. There is nothing that we could, we could pay for what you've done. Like, and we have no value or worth apart from you that you would go to all these lengths from the very beginning to pursue us and to love us. You are a missionary God. And I pray that that would just completely change us, that that would wreck our pride. We would see what it is that you've done for us and how foolish it is for us to try to create an identity apart from you that we think is gonna be better or more fulfilling than what you have already offered us in in your son Jesus. Help us to see how unwise that is and how wise it is to embrace the life that you've already provided. You've done all the work. All of it. We can't justify ourselves. We can't make ourselves righteous. We can't earn your love or your favor. You, you've already given it to us because of what Jesus did, did for us. Like, help us to see that and help that to change our hearts so much that we would love like you love. We would see the people like you see people. Make us missionaries like you, Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Amen.